Hey there, it's Emily Murphy, and this is Grow What You Love, a show sharing unexpected stories of people and plants and growth with a capital G. Now, we are in for a listening experience like no other because I'm taking you with me to the home and studio of William Ryan Fritch, or Willie Rye Fry, as you'll find him on Instagram and Twitter. He's a composer, a songwriter, a multi-instrumentalist based in Northern California, and if you're not familiar with William's work, he's known for creating creating original film scores. Check out movies like the 2017 Oscar-nominated documentary film 4.1 Miles, Bill Nye, Science Guy, and Artificial, a 2019 Tribeca-nominated documentary film directed by my better half, Josh Bones Murphy, which, inside scoop, is how I first met Willie Rye Fry. Now, when I describe Ryan as a multi-instrumentalist, I meant it. I know for a fact that when he created the music for Artificial, he played each and every instrument, recorded them individually, and then wove them together into the original score we hear in the film. Amazing, right? It also turns out that he is an accomplished cook and gardener. William and I had a ton to talk about and things to cook up, so this conversation is split into two episodes. It was the only way to squeeze all the good stuff in, and this is the first of the two episodes. When I arrived at William's, he was in the middle of making a breakfast of curried potatoes and eggs for his family with his dog, Verdi at his feet in the kitchen. A good friend of mine who we just, for the last couple of years, we would just like trade off making curries and making different Thai dishes. and. And he had gotten this large mortar and pestle, and he's like, all right, tell me, have you ever tasted something so gingery? Like, he used maybe a third of what I normally would use. In, gin- in ginger. Of, of ginger. Of fresh ginger. But he used the mortar and pestle and really, really worked it. Something I'd never had such a diffuse, intense ginger experience with this infinitesimal amount in comparison to what I was using to make these curries. And so it just, it, it made me a believer in that the, it's just in like mortar and pestle, more and pestle for, layering for, and, for releasing those flavors. Absolutely. Yeah. And especially when you like, cause I'm going to make some, uh, um, like kind of little fry up with onions, some, uh, coconut flakes. Um, I've got all this shard from our CSA, but when you're working with something really starchy to like, let the flavor, like where it's, you get this mouth feel that each bite you're getting a kind of different profile of the ginger and the garlic and everything. Having it have all those oils <laughs> where it just like it coats the potatoes. Um, it's just different than if I just chop it up and I fry it in a pan. I guess I don't you know. You've what, maybe that, the flavor profiles by absolutely pressing them. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm going to try this. So you're a musician, but you were a cook. Or you have a passion for food? Oh, no. I mean, when, when uh, my now wife and I first met, in between when I w- uh, was touring with bands, the way that I would make ends meet is, I, I mean, horrible to say, but I basically exaggerated my way into becoming a sous chef. <laughs> like, you, you, you oversold yourself? I oversold myself to um, a couple restaurants in Flagstaff, Arizona and in Los Angeles. Now, I had had experience, but almost all my experience was with catering. Okay. Working with catering companies, so very different than working in an industrial kitchen day in and day out and and dealing with those pressures. So, hold on one second. Listeners, if you hear 
what sounds like a dog walking through the kitchen. That's because there's it's my asthma. No. <laughs> <laughs> there's really a dog, a beautiful Vishla dog walking through the kitchen who's looking for attention. It's complicated because the umbilical cord is still attached, so uh, <laughs> it it, pre it presents all kinds of. Because uh, uh, he's a we'll sweetheart. Just, oh, he's just. I've never had a needier but more delightful uh, companion than this. That's like. Yeah. I thought having children, it's like, oh my gosh, like the amount of love that they'll feel for me, it's just like, it's gonna dwarf everything of having a dog. It's like, well, I think maybe still my dog <laughs> loves me more than my children. <laughs> it's, a, it's different, totally. but they are already like, you know, uh, on a more uh, inter-independent route than he is. <laughs> so your story of being a chef, coming back to that, you were basically faking it till you made it. I. Um, a I, bit. I loved. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to be a prep cook because um, I really felt like it's like oh, you know what? I can be a, like I can be a saucier. I can I can work the saute line. I can do more chef things than than just do prep cook, which is technically what my experience would have allowed me to. So um, um, my my friend my yeah. friend that that I did catering with in Flagstaff vouched for me for these different interviews and was like, oh, is, has he worked in lots of commercial kitchen? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, I worked at this uh, um, vegan restaurant in Santa Monica, which was, you know, I've never been personally vegan, but I, uh, one of my former bandmates and someone who's really, really like uh, influential to me, the way that I, I think about music and think about working for yourself uh, he and his wife were vegan and we lived with him for an extended period of time when I first moved to Arizona. So he's a vegan, but not one of these transitional vegans where it's just like everything is all of this processed food. Like he didn't think of substituting anything. He thought about making substance and meaningful whole kind of macrobiotic meals with vegetables that weren't pretending to be something else you can elevate them much the way that like if so often we use cheese and meat mm. to give a fat and flavor profile to lazy dishes so it's like treating herbs and and vegetables and spices that you can focus the spotlight on them right and right. it's not trying to be you're not trying to make a, a burger it's like no like this is this is a vegetable patty it's like why do you have to call it and to be clear, Siri and I, we aren't vegan. I mean, like we live here in Petaluma and, and we feel really thrilled with the options that we have supporting local ranchers and people that are, are raising animals in, in a way that I think um, it's enough outside of the, the huge industrial. Right, it's like, humane, it's sustainable. And you know, I mean, again, it's still sentient life and, and like, it'd be, be personally, it's just like I look at a cow's eyes and I'm like, oh God, <laughs> if I had you on my land, I would be like uh, hand feeding be... you carrots and I would be the biggest mush puddle in the whole world. <laughs> It would be like you and Verdi. <laughs> right. You know, of course, there's the numbers of times that Siri's been like, we should get a goat. I was like, unless you want me to be sleeping outside with that goat, <laughs> and just like, or like trying to push for, it's like, oh, can we take the goat for a walk? Like, it's like, we should, we should like have some boundaries because I'm just like such a sucker. Um, because you're such a sensitive, wonderful human being. That, uh, that that's you know, your my mother would really agree with. That. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> that's about it. <laughs> uh, no, but so I, I, I uh, got this job working as a chef for a restaurant called Elf in Los Angeles. And then also at this place called The Golden Mean, where it was all these kind of vegan macrobiotic dishes. And the other one was a vegetarian restaurant. And I learned so much, so much about cooking under pressure, which... I still, to this day, like to, there's two things that give me stress dreams. One is having to perform a piece of music that I've never heard before because my still, like I'm a, uh, a composer and a, you know, I've been a professional musician for over a decade now, but still my like sight reading is so horrible. It's like, I, I basically read music at like a middle school level uh-huh. or, or, or excuse me I, I sight read at a middle, middle school level so it's like I get like fainting goat dreams of that and then also being in peak hours at a restaurant and then there's like a phone call coming into the back, uh, back of the house and you're understaffed and you're like trying right, to be- right, like right. I, I have become a far better cook and probably a far better person being away from an industrial kitchen but I think that that's more the people will say, oh, you have to live in Los Angeles or live in New York to understand. Like, like, I think you need to work the front of house in the back of a house in the service industry. Yeah, yeah. For any, to, it's like. To really appreciate oh, it. To really appreciate what, what goes into, cre- yeah. Creating the food that we just take for granted when yes. we walk into a restaurant. And, but, it, but it sounds like that experience gave you this, you already had a foundation for food because it's obvious you have such a deep love of food and growing and um i know in earlier conversations we've talked about this pairing of food and music and how they're synonymous and growing is synonymous with music for you but um i can see how it just took your already existing appreciation to a whole new level working in this restaurant environment and then you were able to take that experience past your days of traveling with your band and you know being out on the road to this place where you are now where you're planted you're putting down roots and you have your studio and you're composing music for original scores for film but it's still a big part of your life it is i mean so much of what i think what i learned with stepping away from just cooking for your loved ones or for yourself um, is that what you get paid for or what um, I, I should say is, is kind of commodified both for, uh, for cooking and for music is very similar. Mm-hmm. It's the quiet study and the practice and um, just hammering that rock. That's not what um, you're compensated for. Mm-hmm. That is for your fulfillment to have the baseline skill set and understanding and, and self-critical awareness to be able to produce, to be able to um, work under stressful environments. Mm-hmm. Because like, if you can't keep up in a kitchen, you're a detriment to the greater goal of giving patrons this brief but meaningful escape. And an experience. An experience. Which is similar with to what music. you do with music. Because when you're composing music for a film... Think of all the outside forces and you're composing music for uh, a director who has a vision and the film has a life of its own and your job is to somehow meld all of these visions into something that elevates the film and like the flavor profile of the the turmeric and the peppers i mean it's almost the same concept of bringing these ingredients together you know giving them a little bit of a mash around in the mortar and pestle but this is the minutiae, this is like, you know, it's it, what, by the time it's plated, 
or by the time that the piece of music is synced to the film, this minutia, this attention to, to detail, the little subtleties of what you feel you take ownership and pride in what you've produced, this is just the vesper that hangs over <laughs> the complete the completion of something. What matters is is that you have um, surrendered to the final product. <laughs> in the end, it's like all all of this pro like w would my wife and kids and everyone like the potatoes as much if I didn't do this? I, I'm I, like a potato is a potato. Like you <laughs> you can like you can fry a potato in oil and it is glorious. It is right. a glorious, glorious thing. But this process brings you joy. And yeah, you understand the difference. Yes. When I first started really getting into making records and thinking about mixing, because, there, there, I mean, there's so many analogies for how music and food just, like, follow these same kinds of cycles. But, <laughs> like, composing a piece of music that feels balance and integrated and that it's its own little ecosystem similar to like a, a well-constructed dish but then you get into like how you're actualizing this composition in the stereo field mixing it's like a whole nother little element to it that i was late to really understanding but this audio mixer paul mckenna he like worked with michael jackson and luther vandross and all of these like sublime popular mm -hmm. records and he also worked on this uh, album with bob dylan called time out of mind which was like the best <laughs> the best he sounded since he's been past his prime and he would you know tell me this end over and over and over again of that how he would try all these different uh, mixes you know make sometimes 10 to 12 different mixes for each song and, and dylan would sit next to him at the console and say, there's not enough mystery there's not enough mystery. There's not enough mystery. That when everything was spread out and clear in each voice, all the components that went into it were splayed open and, you know, they could have been played and actualized and just like the session musicians that played on the song were incredible. So each detail was immaculately recorded, expertly uh, performed with finesse and emotion. Mm -hmm. But still when it's laid bare the alchemy of how they work together is spelled out to you in the mix that it's like okay the bass is panned far left i can hear all of the definition of why this person is playing this bass line uh -huh. and it's like oh we, we land on the tonic we like it's easily dissected by your ears so maybe on the first listen it is immediately apparent and it hits you in the chest mm -hmm. because even if it's not simple in the way it was conceived, the way that it was presented was to be digestible. Okay. And what Dylan kept pushing the sound mixer to do was that I want these ingredients to reveal themselves on the 20th listen. So, there, so he was building in that mystery. Exactly. And so the closer that you pan things together in the stereo field, the more we call it ducking or frequency cancellation. Mm -hmm. and, so, and, and just from a, a physics standpoint, oftentimes it's used as a negative connotation of that you're sacrificing clarity because you're not giving these sound waves enough room to breathe. <laughs> but, and I find this in, in mixing a lot of my own music, is that the more that I focus on, okay, how good does everything sound versus how well does this piece convey a story beyond what I'm thinking of, like the, the forest for the trees, the, the idea that 
this is not a textbook way to mix something so that it's an immediate pop hit. But if it lends itself towards deeper investigation, deeper listening, you pause for a moment. I can't identify that instrument. I can't. Um, it's And it's not a better or worse, but it's if that's what artistically makes sense to you, there are ways of doing that, and this can be really, really rewarding. And similarly with food, you it's know. It's the like, same you know. thing, and what I'm hearing too, there's there's a couple of things I'm hearing. One, you have to go somewhere a little bit uncomfortable in yourself in order to create something original right. that hasn't been created before. Yes. And two, the other thing that I'm seeing in my mind right now mm. is something I talk about quite a bit in my own work, which is a garden, embracing a little bit of chaos. Why do we need neat rows of veggies? Well, they make us feel good. It makes it easier to harvest them. We can we can clearly see each of the individual plants. They have room to breathe, which they do need room to breathe. But there's something really fabulous about mixing those plantings up and letting it be a little messy and experimenting. And why not tuck that calendula in between the the squash and the tomatoes. Why not throw in herbs in between the, um, you know, the bush beans or whatever it might be that you're growing for your table. And then you get this fabulous mix up that you had like, like a snowflake. It's something brand new and you invite pollinators. It has these multiple purposes. Then it's utilitarian beyond just growing rows of vegetables. Think about how little control we really have in our of our (laughs) of our you know little dominions each of us so that it's like to be a a good steward or to like if you're responsible for this little garden bed and why not throw a little bit of wild a little bit of the unknown because we can learn so much from the interactions it's like when you're like out in the wild or on a hike or you come across like wild blueberries, what's around these blueberries? Was it precisely that, you know, it had this amount of shade or that the, the, they just took, they took root somewhere because of the diversity. Uh, the diversity around, and around the it. aspect and the topography right. and, and there's something really beautiful in that. Do you want to see the studio for a second? I totally want to see the studio. <laughs> I want to see where you make your music. That sounds great. Let's go, yeah. Let's go do it. Fact. Watering is essential to making plants grow, so why not arm yourself with tools that make it easier? Gilmore makes a line of swivel connect nozzles that pivot without twisting the hose behind you, so no matter where you walk or spray, your hose stays straight. Why does that matter? Because hoses that stay straight kink less, and with this nozzle, they'll kink 70% less, which is a lot. You'll get a 50% reduction in torque, which means you'll get less of that twisting feeling while pulling the hose around, which of course makes it easier to move around. Definitely a win-win. Cool tool. Check it out at gilmore.com and get 20% off the Swivel Connect nozzles with promo code GRO20 or GROW20. We're inside Williams Barn Turned Studio, and this is a 20 by 40 space, and it's packed, literally packed with instruments. There's like a, a banjolin or some kind of ukulele over here. There's cellos and violins and, and electric guitars and acoustic guitars and pianos. I mean, I'm counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, at least eight keyboards, if not more, xylophones, 
drums, saxophone, a harp. There's so many instruments in here. It's kind of blowing my mind in the sense that I know that you can play all of these instruments. <laughs> so listeners, just so you know, I've met William before because I'm lucky to say that he was the composer on a film that's very near and dear to my heart called Artificial, and uh, William created the original score for that. So I know for a fact that he played every instrument that you hear in the score, laid down the track for each of those instruments, and blended them together, wove them together in a fabric that is the music for this film. And when I heard this, I was completely amazed and had to see the studio for myself. And there are literally hundreds of instruments in here. Probably. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, the, and the fact that you can play them all is for this person here, Emily Murphy, that is not, not so musical. I, I seriously have musical envy right now. I wish I were a musical. I wish I could carry just a tune, let alone be musical. So I'm incredibly impressed at this gift that you have. And can you talk a little bit about some of these instruments? Or show I, thought, yeah, I, I would love to. I would love to see some of <laughs> them. Of course, Can I hear some of their of sounds? Course. Like what, are, of these instruments, of these many instruments, are there a handful of them that that you go to frequently? They're, go to they're the they're the foundation for many of the songs you create, or you feel are essential to the sound that you create that's unique for your craft. Well, I mean, so many of the things that I have in here, you know, a lot of them are pretty lesser instruments you know some people they have their Stradivarius or they have their like Les Paul guitar that is just like they have this very specific relationship with them that that's this is a premium instrument and it can do all the things that they want to do with it and I feel like I have all of these acquaintances in my studio (laughs) these like you know the neighbor that gets the mail like the moment that the post (laughs) there's all these eccentricities uh, that make them useful for my recordings so some of my favorite instruments are the things that i go back to it's not because they are the most sonorous or, or the most versatile instrument it's just because they do one thing so so peculiarly and with such idiosyncrasies that i just like i build compositions around the behavior that this thing does and um you know there's some composers that they are architects like they they think about constructing a composition and they lay out the score as if it were these extravagant plans to be actualized by the contractors the skilled carpenters the masons all these things but because of the nature of my work and most of the films that i work on where i have to be i have to do all the layman work for it. So my relationship with them, even though there is still through composing and there's all the orchestration, I get to have this hands-on quality that I become more of a cabinet maker than an architect. Um, So yeah, there's just like little things like this, this one, one little symbol that I got from um, (laughs) the Oakland flea market. And it's not a great sounding symbol by any means. It's, it's got, this is what it sounds like when you just hit it. Right, right, let me take off the stand here. Like. It's not a particularly nice or pleasing sounding symbol, but I've mapped on it 
dozens of pitches that I can play that when I bow it specifically, it rings because of the irregularities of how it's hammered. So I know all of these pitches that, depending on where I bow on the cymbal, I can play chromatic pitches across a couple different octaves based on by how much pressure I put with the bow, where I'm holding it. And this allows me to blend with string instruments and in, in some cases, like with um, artificial, I was taking these artifacts of the bowed symbol that um, it sings in a way that it's not immediately recognizable. I can put it with a horn because of its metallic quality. So if I'm blending that with a flugelhorn or a trumpet, it's matching this brassiness, but also because of how I can sustain with it and because there is a horsehair making contact with it, you can blend it with the string. So it becomes this beautiful kind of partitioning voice between these different instrument worlds. But I got the symbol for $5. Um, and its little secrets didn't reveal itself to me until I spent all this time with it. And I was like, gosh, this was definitely hand hammered. You know, nowadays, like a, a, a typical, like a nice, this is a, a, a vintage Zildjian symbol here. Like This, this machine that they make all of these tiny little hammers and indentations in it where it's even and the little rivets that are on it which cause the sizzle um, they're kind of spaced out in a way where it's predictable you know that if I hit it with a certain velocity I'm going to get a certain sound where this symbol depending on where I hit it there's all kinds of weird sounds it's like oh that's so sharp it will mimic the feedback of a guitar when you stand right next to the amp um, so that unpredictability, if you spend enough time with it and you can map it out, it becomes a really powerful compositional tool. So, and it's this so, unlikely instrument because it's something you picked up for $5 at a flea market. Right. And it doesn't look like anything special, but when you play it... It does all these uh, funky little It does all these amazing weird... things for your music. And uh, similarly, again, like while we're on the quality of instruments that are not pretty, <laughs> but I use all the time, this accordion, one of my dear friends who I had mixed an album for, and she gave me this accordion as like a little thank you for it, and she called it her little shop of horrors. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, this is an accordion I had and it's falling apart, but I think you might be able to use, <laughs> use this. Where it's like, if, if I hold a D, so like it's a, it's a relatively normal D pulling out, okay. but when I push it in, It has this warble irregularity. And I'll say it bends on the way back because the way that, that the bellows on this are, um, there's tiny little dried up cracks in it. So very strong and strident on the way out. Yeah. The same note, I'm only holding one note, but it's bifurcated into these two different pitches. And depending on, I'm bending this ghost note in it and to me I don't know if you are hearing the same thing but I hear that and it reminds me of 
imperial Japanese music. There's this this instrument called the show, and it's a mouth reed organ, and it's an imperfect for at least for Western tuning. That the relationships about by how hard you excite these reeds, the pitch will go sharp or flat. And so you get all of these really interesting drifts between the pitches. And spending this time with <laughs> this instrument, just how that would blend with horns and, and strings really well, I think about this instrument. And each note has its own kind of peculiar effect that doesn't behave like a well-maintained accordion. So that allows me to think about, okay, what can I think of that has this playful kind of drift that I can get phasing qualities out of? And immediately what comes to mind is the world of synthesizers, analog synthesizers, where their tuning fluctuates by how much time that you, you know, or at least some of the vintage ones, they take time to warm up. So it's tuning drifts. So I can play with this. It's an acoustic instrument. It's a reed-based instrument where I'm controlling the bellows, and that's how I get velocity, volume. Mm-hmm. A synthesizer, it's um, the circuitry that is doing this, and depending how you're feeding voltage through. So I can blend between this synthetic sound source and acoustic sound source and make a hybrid instrument for a score that is it becomes modular because um, I'm changing these physical my physical relationship with the instrument would be doing what you would like with a patch bay controlling these different um, modular components all from from this little little thing yeah and then like how I was talking about with uh, how it reminded me of this Japanese music but it it's this is a Chinese instrument called a ulusi So it's, oh, it's, that's yeah. amazing. So it's got this little so little, little gourd. So it's its fingering is just like a little recorder that every kid learns how yeah, to play in it, school. It's like a it's like a well, this is a something grown from the garden. It's a gourd. Right? It's a gourd that has this lovely, shapely female figure in its form. And then you have these what looks like three recorders coming out of one yeah. side of it. And these are these are reed stops that you can remove them, and it changes the resonance. So that's like the oboe, or that's the buzz, the, the, the buzz, and, and yeah. yeah. So it's that buzzing sound. I'm controlling the fundamental pitch, like a woodwind. Like a woodwind, but it's this whole other it's instrument that fits in your hand. Sympathetic drone reed. Right, and, so, they, and they all have their own emotions that they evoke. They're perfect for film absolutely. because that's what it is. It's evoking emotion and creating story. And I've done films where it's it's you know set in, in China, and uh, I'm using this accordion, which you know it's like it's a um, so, it's an Italian it's an Italian accordion, and we associate it with the waltz and all of these other. 
particular sound world, but it feels like it belongs to another world. Another world. It, it, it's, it's, it's partially it broken. Partially broken. <laughs> <laughs> and you've learned, you've mastered And I do, I do have non-broken instruments, but, but, uh, but I think in, in terms of like talking about how I like to think of sound, because there are truly, truly millions of composers out there that if it's just based on their musical training, the, the, how beautiful they make um, things sound, their compositional prowess. I'm not even in the same world. I mean, even though I continued my education and went to Mills College to study composition. And so like, I, I feel, <laughs> you know, I'm happy with how life has brought me into composition. But I step into the studio much the same way that I would walk into a kitchen. Like, I'm going to decide how I'm going to nourish something, whether it be the film that I'm working on or if it's just a personal investigation of, of a sound. It's um, taking these different ingredients and, you know, it's the myth of that, that inspiration is this little, this little thing whispering in your ear, humming a tune. It's not like that. It comes after, it's on the eighth hour of labor that inspiration comes. So it's a time and attention, which is something we've talked about before and that you mention in your work and your writings that you give to something. It's the time that you took with this symbol that's imperfect and you discovered the sounds it had to offer and you're able to add them to your work. Yeah. And whereas if you went into a drum shop and you just, you had only a few seconds with it and you had to make a purchase as to, that this is your workhorse. Mm -hmm. And almost none of my instruments would hold up as someone's workhorse in an orchestra or but because what I'm doing in the studio is is I harvest timbres and, and textures and tones and then let that drive um, the compositions. So all of these things have immense value to me. Like uh, <laughs> like I have um, this is a, like speaking of another kid like this is a kid's toy. I, I, I you know initially got this from my my daughter on a I lark. Know what those are. So these are the little whirly tubes. Yeah, the plastic whirly tube, one one is orange striped, striped, is that a word? Yeah, and right. purple striped, and, and listeners, I'll take a picture of these and post them on the the podcast uh, website so you can see <laughs> these high-tech instruments. So you, primary, it's a primary note, higher harmonic series, higher harmonic series. Highest harmonic series that you can get from. So um, I realized that line, based on how much you cut, how long the tube oh. is, it changes the pitch. Changes so the pitch. I bought like 30 of these. Because <laughs> 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 like, they're like 99 cents each. And I was. <laughs> We're getting a really great visual into the process of William Ryan Fritch and his composition, his, his album making, his music making, his original scores it all comes down to these to these wackadoo they're <laughs> like children whirly tubes but, but you're finding sounds in these interesting places and you're putting them together and what an amazing process i mean the journey you've come on is so unexpected and interesting and you make these amazing sounds individually i think all of these sounds stand alone and are amazing and then at the same time you weave them together into something unexpected. When we go back to what we were talking about earlier, Bob Dylan wanting to create something with a little bit of mystery. Uh, 
That's what you're doing, whether you realize it or not, on some level, don't you think? I mean, you uh, if you <laughs> um, if you can't find pleasure in your craft, and if you're not interested in listening to the piece of music for the thousandth time, how can you expect anyone else to to be willing to even invest into listening to it once? With all the multiplicity of everything that we like. There, we can listen to any style of music from any era of recorded music at any time. And it's available at our fingertips. So how am I going to make something that's like an honest expression of what I do that I feel like is worth someone investing the energy to listen deeply? And, you know, I mean, these, these are silly examples. And like you said, it's about how you take these little sounds hiding in plain view and harness them into something that feels satisfying as a part of a whole. See photos from my day with Willie Rye Fry and learn more about him on the podcast blog, growwhatyoulove.love. You'll find links to his website and socials like Instagram and Twitter there and follow him again at Willie Rye Fry. Don't forget, of course, to subscribe to the podcast. Give it a thumbs up if you like it and please leave a review. This is incredibly helpful to the life of the show. I'd like to start off by thanking my sponsor, the fabulous team at Gilmore Garden and Watering. Again, this episode would not have been possible without their help. And Gilmore makes this fabulous swivel connect nozzle. So have you ever had that feeling like the more you walk around trying to water your yard, the more unwieldy your hose gets? One watering product that makes that easier is just that, this Gilmore Swivel Connect nozzle. It pivots without twisting the hose behind you, so no matter where you spray, your hose stays straight and it's easy to move. And the best part is your hose will kink up to 70% less. Pretty amazing, right? Try one out today with promo code GROW20 or GROW20 and save 20% at Gilmore.com. I'd also like to thank William for making time in his day to meet with me, Chris Camacho for sound engineering, Disher Sound, Resonant Recordings, and Lauren Siri, Julie Harris-Walker, Lasa Dracovich, Josh Murphy, Laura Ling, and thank you to all of you for supporting and believing in me. I'm Emily Murphy, and this is Grow What You Love. I thought this could be inspiration for your garden. This is beautiful yeah so what, what, what do we have here we have uh, some basil yeah this is lemon. for our cooking today okay. whatever we're gonna cook up basil mm. this is just sweet basil lemon verbena wait till you smell that um, anise hyssop and there's some lemon thyme in here it's just kind of hiding and then there's some really fabulous little plants in here there's uh, an anise hyssop um, volunteer from my garden and then I grew these plants from seed. This is uh, tetra squash, which is a Dana Barber seed, yeah. row seven seeds. Dana Barber paired up with a farmer to develop these plants that are grown for flavor. And I haven't grown this one yet. I'm really excited. So oh I thought you would be the perfect wow, person. Wow, so thought. And then awesome. <laughs> Thank you. And then some other things. We'll t we can talk about them later. Oh, that's so exciting. This is for the kids. That's a cucumelon. I thought they would love. Um, picking those. They look like little tiny Ken and, Ken and Barbie watermelons. Oh, that's amazing. That's like what I imagine if you like crossed like a potbelly pig and an elephant. Like, <laughs> like it's just like, like just the, the perfect combination of just ridiculous cuteness with convenience. <laughs>